as we start off the episode, today is May 16th of 2022, and over the weekend was the horrible tragedy that occurred in Buffalo, New York. A white supremacist terrorist um, actively sought after one of the few grocery stores in a predominantly black uh, part of Buffalo, New York, and executed several members of the community. Uh, news is continuing to unfold about the event, but I think the death toll, last I checked, was at a total of 10, with 13 people injured. Uh, horrific, horrific tragedy, and um, would be remiss if you know not taking a minute at least to acknowledge what occurred. And as I said this weekend, I thought, you know, what can I really do to help? It seems so uh, disconnected from reality. We're so used to seeing these horrible acts of violence these days. And I went back and forth between taking a break from my own kind of sanity and mental health back to social media and then feeling guilty because I'm on social media and not really doing anything to help this situation. And looking online, a couple of things when I was really searching for ways to affect any sort of change, I uh, came across John King's Instagram page and he actually provided some actionable steps for helping out the situation that occurred in Buffalo. He recommended listening to the people and families and the grassroots leaders down there in Buffalo and, you know, stay tuned for ways that we can fully support them. Obviously, they're in the midst of uh, grieving as a community together, uh, but in the coming days and weeks and months, there will be ways to get further involved. There will likely be, number two, um, fundraising opportunities because these families lost loved ones. There will be some financial cost for um, providing necessary arrangements as they, they move forward to Hill as a community. Sean King goes on to state that we need to demand to see the budget and staffing of our local and state governments and see what they're actually doing to fight white supremacy on a federal level. We pay taxes at this point, and this needs to be incorporated into the budget. To that end, this episode of Black Daughters Podcast is actually a sponsored episode, and we'll get into that in a little bit, but we will be taking the money um, that, that we accrued from this episode, and it will be donated um, in its entirety to either a charity organization or a GoFundMe for um, whatever way we can ultimately help the citizens of Buffalo. Um, it's not much, but it's um, a little, a little bit of what we can do. Encourage each of you to, you know, stay tuned. Definitely take care of your mental health. Um, do whatever it is that that means to you. And when you're able to, you know, look out for ways that you can help uh, folks in this situation. Today's episode speaks on the topic of malpractice. It is sponsored by Aegis Malpractice Solutions. And their CEO joins us to share and to increase our knowledge of this, this field that impacts most of our practices as physicians uh, and as healthcare providers. Her company essentially is uh, a one-stop shop for learning more about and for obtaining malpractice insurance. You can visit their website, aegismalpractice.com, that's A-E-G-I-S-M-A-L-P-R-A-C-T-I-C-E.com. And you can, one, learn more because uh, Jennifer does have a podcast where she talks about different aspects of malpractice insurance to provide uh, further education. And then you can get plugged in and request a quote and talk to her and her team about your situation, your malpractice needs, even if it's just to, to double check and make sure that you're covered. Uh, this episode was fantastic because I got to kind of ask all the questions that I had about malpractice insurance, all the things that I didn't know about. And she was so gracious in explaining malpractice insurance, breaking it down at a very elementary level. So thank you to Aegis Malpractice Solutions for partnering with the Black Daughters Podcast and supporting our goals in increasing diversity in healthcare and the healthcare workforce because representation matters. And once again, all the proceeds from this episode of the show will be donated 
to help the victims of the senseless attack in Buffalo. This podcast is sponsored by PicMonic. In 2011, two medical students came up with the ingenious idea to combine medical education with unforgettable characters and ridiculously memorable stories. Featuring over 35,000 high-yield facts and graphics, PicMonic has helped over 600,000 students improve exam scores and perform better clinically. PicMonic has resources for pre-med and medical students, as well as other healthcare professions. Check out the show notes for a link to their website. Mention the podcast when you subscribe. With PicMonic, you can study less, but remember more. The Black Doctors Podcast highlights the stories of minority professionals with the goal of inspiring others. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and share with others because the next generation can't be what they don't see. Tune in every Monday to hear our stories told by us. Hello, welcome back to the Black Doctors Podcast. I am Stephen, your host. Today is a special episode. It's going to be a little different. We have Jennifer Wiggins. She is the CEO and founder of Aegis Malpractice Solutions. She's going to talk to us about something that impacts all of our careers or future careers as physicians, healthcare professionals, malpractice insurance. Jennifer, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm glad to be here. Yeah, I will say, so Aegis reached out to me as a company and we are partnering with them. They are sponsoring this episode. So we appreciate them believing in our mission to help increase diversity in healthcare. Of note, this is not financial advice. This is just a talk and a chat about malpractice insurance. Yep, exactly. So, did I call you Jennifer? Yeah, Jennifer, Jen. Just don't call me Jenny because then I feel like I'm five years old. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Jen. Um, So, you are the CEO and founder of this company. How did you get into the malpractice insurance business? So, uh, fresh out of college, I knew that I wanted to be um, in a sales career, and I also knew I wanted to be involved in healthcare in some capacity. So, initially, I thought I wanted to get into the pharma industry. Tried to interview with a few different pharma companies. At that point in time, I didn't get a single callback. So, I ended up falling into a position um, as a switchboard operator for a company in Fort Wayne, Indiana called Medical Protective or MedPro. So I started at MedPro, gosh, almost 20 years ago now, and literally was answering the 1-800 number calls, transferring doctors to their agents and their claim managers and the various people in the company, and worked my way up from that to a customer service role, into a sales role, and then into a regional sales role, where my job was really to be the direct salesperson for the company, which essentially meant that I was selling malpractice insurance to physicians and surgeons in my region. Um, So I would walk into a doctor's office and basically say, hey, would you like to buy insurance from Medical Protective? Um, And that's kind of where I got my start in this particular industry. Wow. And then how long were you with uh, that company? So I was with MedPro for about 16 years. And I really learned a lot and I really enjoyed working there. But what I started to find in my job was, you know, I'm walking into practices, I'm talking to CEOs, practice administrators, doctors, and I really found that there were two gaps uh, in the marketplace. The first was there was a general gap in knowledge just in terms of understanding of the different types of malpractice insurance What's the difference between occurrence and claims made? Why would I pick one over the other? Um, Mm -hmm. Then there was also a general gap in knowledge just in terms of, you know, what are even the available carriers? So how do do I buy it? How do I compare one company versus the other? 
How do I make sure I'm not overpaying? But how do I also make sure that I'm getting quality coverage so that, you know, when something happens, I have a policy that's going to activate and cover me and give me the defense and the protection that I need. Fantastic. So at that point in time, yeah. So at that point in time, I decided to resign from that position at MedPro and I started my own business, which is Aegis Malpractice Solutions. So that was in the fall of 2018. I uh, resigned from that role and took the leap of faith to start my own company. And uh, here we are today, gosh, three years later, it seems like a whirlwind. (laughs) And uh, so, yeah, so what we do now is we are a boutique insurance agency. We only do medical malpractice insurance and we cover the two things that I found the gaps in the market. So our job is to help educate help doctors understand medical malpractice insurance, because look, at the end of the day, your job is to practice good medicine. Your job is not to be an insurance expert, but this is a really important aspect of your practice. So you do need to know enough to be educated and to be able to make the right choice when it comes to the right policy to cover you. And you said your first job was to educate. And then I think you mentioned access to markets. Yeah, yeah. So obviously educating is a big part of what we do, but ultimately we're an insurance agency. So what we do then is give doctors um, options in the marketplace. So we basically shop around, we get doctors quotes from all of the carriers in the market, and then really help them objectively compare the difference from one carrier to the next to the next. So why would you pick carrier A versus carrier B? Um, and just make sure that you're getting the best policy at the best price. So obviously, as an insurance agency, then our job is to then serve as your agent. So we take care of the coverage for you. We answer any questions as your practice evolves and grows. We make sure that the current policy is still the right fit for you. And because we only do medical malpractice, we're really in tune with what's happening in the marketplace. So if there's a shift in the market and all of a sudden one carrier takes a rate increase, or perhaps another carrier goes out of the market completely, we can advise our customers and really make sure that they're positioned in the best possible place so that they can have excellent coverage for the long haul. Awesome. That's fantastic. And I definitely have so many questions that we're going to get to over the course of this episode. But to start, I want to make sure everybody can find you guys. Um, It's pronounced Aegis Malpractice Solutions, but it's spelled A-E-G-I-S. You were explaining um, earlier, like how you came up with this name. Even you started this company a couple of years ago. So, how does one come up with a, a creative name for their company? Yeah. So, at the time, it sounded like a brilliant idea, right? But nobody can pronounce <laughs> it. But it, there was a method to our madness. So, basically, when I was looking for a business name, um, you know, I said, "All right, put myself in a doctor's position. If I was looking for insurance, what would I do?" And basically, I'd go to a malpractice carrier website, I'd go to get a quote, and I'd look for an agent. Well, all the agents are listed alphabetically. (laughs) So (laughs) I knew I needed to start with an A in order to be at the top of that list. And then I wanted to make sure that our name really meant something. So Aegis is a Greek word. Um, It actually represents the shield of Zeus. So it's the sign of protection and advocacy. And um, that's really what we do. Our job is to obviously educate, but also make sure that our clients have the protection and the advocacy that they need um, so that they can practice with confidence. Fantastic. As we get started, so can you explain to me, like I'm five years old, the concept of medical malpractice insurance? Yeah. 
So it all starts with what is malpractice, right? Malpractice is the deviation from the standard of care that results in harm. So it really comes down to that one singular issue, which is what is the standard of care? So anytime a doctor is sued for medical malpractice, that is the main question at hand. So did you deviate from the standard of care? So how do they prove what is the standard of care? Well, that's when both the defense and the plaintiff side will bring in expert witnesses. So if you're an anesthesiologist, they'll bring in another anesthesiologist, both on the plaintiff side and the defense side, and they'll look mm-hmm. at the facts of the case. And their job is to basically put on their thinking caps and say, all right, if I was in Dr. Bradley's same situation, the facts were all the same, similar circumstances, would I have acted in the same manner? So that's ultimately kind of the litmus test of the standard of care. So they're looking at the facts of the case, and then ultimately they're looking to the experts to say, is this reasonable? Is this what a reasonable physician in a same or similar circumstance would have done? Um, Because we're not holding doctors to a standard of perfection because nobody is perfect. Nobody's expecting you to be perfect, but we are asking you to do what a reasonable physician would have done if they were in the same situation. So that's ultimately what malpractice is. And so malpractice insurance is obviously a policy that you buy that will give you protection. So it pays for your defense attorney. So the attorney that will represent you in court, help prepare you for depositions, prepare you to go to trial if you need to do that. But then obviously it then has this pocket of money for you where if there's a claim that's you know settled or there's some sort of a payment made, that insurance policy would obviously pay that for you so that you're not paying out of pocket potentially millions of dollars if you have an insurance policy that covers that for you. So does malpractice insurance cover you if you're if I'm practicing outside the standard of care? It does. I mean, there so what you're saying is, well, I'm hoping you're or, I'm not sorry, saying if, if, that it's if, intentional. If in court, yeah, if in court they're like, oh yeah, <laughs> that wasn't in the standard of care, am I That's still right. good? That's okay. exactly right. That's what it's for. So obviously, as long as you are practicing, you know, like a reasonable physician would, even if you make a mistake. I mean, we've had issues with orthopedic cases where there's wrong site surgery. Um, I mean, you would, I mean, across the board, there are all sorts of cases and those are covered losses by your malpractice policy. Now, there is one type of specific loss that is generally not covered, and that's intentional reckless behavior. So if you go into the operating room with the intent to hurt a patient, then that's not covered, right? But there's really, to my knowledge, no doctor that is intentionally going in to harm a patient. Um, that would be a punitive case. And in that instance, if that was if you were found guilty of punitive um, damages, your insurance policy does not cover you for that. That's something that you're personally responsible for. But that really doesn't happen. That's like intentional harm, like crazy people. So we really don't see that all that often. Gotcha. I've never seen that in my 20 years. And and it covers your attorney fees and the settlement. I had never even thought about that. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, even if it's a nuisance claim and, you know, in today's day and age, doctors get sued if they sneeze outside the room of a patient <laughs> where there's something that happens, you know, 
plaintiff attorneys nowadays really are going to name as many people as they can if you had anything to do with a particular case. And part of what your malpractice insurance protects you for is to make sure that you get dropped, right? So they get you a defense attorney to be able to represent you to show that you, you know, this wasn't involving you, you had nothing to do with it, it gets you out of the case. So that's part of what your insurance is going to cover you for, to make sure that you're not involved in cases that you shouldn't be involved in. And if okay. you are, then obviously making sure that you've got the right defense and protection and coverage that you need. So if I get named in a case and then they realize that I was not involved or, or my malpractice insurance would cover the attorney fees to prove that I wasn't involved? Yep, exactly right. Huh. Yeah. All of that's okay. covered as part of your policy. You do not pay out of pocket for any of that. That's what your insurance is for. So when you pay the premium for your insurance on an annual basis, you're covering all of that is included in your coverage. Gotcha. And one of the things that I've heard about is the judgments versus being settled out of court. Mm-hmm. Do either of those make a difference with the malpractice insurance? No, nope. your coverage will activate either way. So if, if it is a case that gets settled, then your insurance will pay the settlement. If it's a case that goes to trial and there's a verdict against you in trial, then it'll pay the settlement or it'll pay the indemnity from that trial as well. So it doesn't matter if it's, if there are any payments made against you, um, that is what your insurance covers for you. Yeah, that's reassuring. Yeah, so that's what it's there for. And I mean, it's expensive. So you want... you. <laughs> need to make sure it's covering you for that kind of stuff because you're paying a lot for it on an annual basis. So what happens um, if I need malpractice insurance and I use it? Uh, I assume that means my rates will go up? It doesn't necessarily mean that your rates will go up. So what happens is, you know, the longer you're in practice without a loss against you, the more discount you get. So obviously, Mm -hmm. if you've been in practice for, you know, three to five years and you've never had a loss, you're going to get a premium discount that you get applied to your cost on an annual basis. If you have a claim, then that credit will be reduced. So it may feel like a rate increase, but it's not really a rate increase. It just means you're not getting as much of a discount as you would have received otherwise, but it'll feel like a rate increase. Uh, If you've had a loss, you may not get as much of a discount as you would have otherwise. Kind of like that good driver discount that you would get for your auto insurance. Very similar, you get a loss-free credit. Most carriers provide those for doctors who haven't had a loss against them. But if you were named in a claim and that claim was successfully defended, then there was no loss. So huh. you wouldn't that wouldn't be punitive, right? You wouldn't have, your credit would remain the same because you didn't have anything paid out against you. How much malpractice insurance... I mean, what what numbers are we talking here in terms of how much do I need as a physician? I, I, it probably differs on your specialty, but I mean. Yeah, it depends on your specialty. It also depends on where you practice geographically. Hmm. So um, there are some states that have a standard limit. For example, I live in the state of Indiana. Um, we have a patient compensation fund here in Indiana. And so every doctor in the state of Indiana only has to carry $500,000 per claim with a $1.5 million aggregate limit for the year because the Indiana State um, Patient Compensation Fund pays for any claims in excess of that amount of money. But that's unique just to Indiana. If you were practicing in another state, let's say you practiced in Texas, you might want to carry more. So the standard limit 
kind of nationwide is 1 million, 3 million. So it gives you $1 million mm-hmm. worth of coverage per claim and a $3 million aggregate for any one policy year. So that's kind of the standard across the board. But again, depending on your state, there might be nuances that you need to be aware of with your state and also your specialty, like you mentioned. So, you know, if you're an OBGYN, you probably want to carry at least a million dollars worth of coverage. It wouldn't be safe or wise for you to carry, let's say, a $200,000 policy limit, um, because on average, those doctors' claim payments are in the 350s or 400s. So you would want at least a million uh, in coverage just to make sure that you've got a buffer there. And those numbers, you said, so a million per claim and three million. So you can get, you can have what, three claims in the year and you're covered? Yeah. So three, you could have three limit claims in one year and your policy will still cover you. Now, the chances of that happening are pretty low because the chances of you hitting a million dollar claim three times in one year really isn't that likely. Um, It is possible you could have three claims, but chances are it'll be like a $200,000 loss for one claim and then a $50,000 loss for the next claim. So, you know, generally speaking, we don't often see doctors blow through that aggregate. Um, just because it's just not as likely. And the chances of you having that many claims of that high of an amount in such a short period of time is not is not as likely. And then it resets the next year. You start Correct. over, but then Correct. you lose your discount maybe. If, you, if you've had a paid claim, you could potentially lose a discount. Yeah. Okay. I'm yep. tracking. I'm tracking. Yep. And then what, I guess, is obstetrics the one of the higher um, specialties for male practice in terms of claim payments, claim payments and or just premiums, your, your premium, both. Yeah. So it is one of the higher, I mean, in both cases. So OB is unique because you have two potential losses. You have mother and baby. So you could have, mm-hmm. you know, if there's an absolutely catastrophic case and mother and baby die, um, that is obviously a much more expensive case than if it were just a mother that dies, right? And you hate to think of it in that kind of crude terms, but that's really what you're dealing with when you're dealing with two exposures instead of one. So OB yeah. does have a little bit higher exposure in that regard. Um, but, you know, some of the other specialties that pay a lot are the high-risk surgeons. So you've got neurosurgery is obviously at the top of that list. You know, any of the, like, cardiothoracic those types of, of specialties are generally more expensive. So those are kind of the ones that we see that pay more. And on the other end of the scale, the providers that pay the least, obviously, are the lower risk specialists. So allergists, right? Hmm. Psychiatrists, to a certain degree, depending on what they're doing. Um, primary care is obviously at the lower end. Dermatology is at the lower end. So it just depends. And there's kind of this scale based on the risk and the average claim payment. When it comes to malpractice insurance, there's really two factors that drive a doctor's cost when it comes to claims, mm-hmm. and that's that's their claim frequency and their claim severity. So obviously, claim frequency is how often are they sued, and claim severity is how high is the payouts. So if okay. you've got a doctor that gets dinged a lot, but they're just tiny little claims, right, that's different as opposed to you know, the $10 million 
huge severity loss is a different type of exposure. So those are the two kind of measures that an insurance carrier is looking at to determine a doctor's insurability is how often are you sued and how severely are you sued so that they can determine, you know, if your risk is normal, higher than normal, and that would affect obviously how much premium you have to pay. Gotcha. So with that being said, say you're a practice physician and you get sued a couple times for something small, maybe Mm -hmm. four times a year though, and you have this 1 million and 3 million policy. Mm -hmm. What happens with that fourth are you on your own for that last one? Like if it goes over the aggregate limit? Yeah, you're right. Yeah, it's not the number of claims. It's just the Correct. $1 million. Okay. So it's a $1 million limit per claim. So let's say oh, you have true. four claims. You have a $1 million limit for each one of those four claims. And then the sum total of all the losses can't exceed $3 million. So you could get you could have 10 claims. <laughs> And as long, you know what I mean, or 20, you know what I mean? As long as they stay under the $1 million per claim limit, they're covered. And as long as the sum total of all of them don't exceed that aggregate in one policy year, then they're all covered. But let's just say the bottom falls out and it's a terrible year and you do blow through that $3 million aggregate, which I think is your question. Are you on the hook? Um, So technically the answer is yes you're on the hook. However, um, I have yet to see an insurance carrier hold a doctor's feet to the fire. A lot of times they'll work with them, accommodate something so that they've got at least some coverage. Um, I really haven't seen any situations where a doctor has been completely exposed. Usually there's some, you know, additional protection offered as a courtesy if you go through over that. Now, obviously that's no promise and no guarantee. So don't hold me to it. If that, <laughs> if that ever happens to you and you're like, well, Jennifer told me that you guys are going to cover me, uh, you know, obviously it's situational, but very rarely do doctors ever go, go through that. I mean, it literally never has happened in my experience that a doctor has blown through their aggregate. But if it happens, I think most of the time, the good quality carriers will provide some sort of a courtesy, additional coverage to help them out. Got you. And um, caveat to the listener, this is no reflection on my practice. I'm just, these are just questions, folks. (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. I'm learning so much. I mean, I think, you know, when I see these big numbers, like a million and three million, it just totally turns me off. But the way you've broke it down is very helpful um, with, with regards to strategies for physicians. Like what are some risk management strategies that we can use to, I don't know, decrease the rate of lawsuits or maintain low premiums? Yeah. So um, there's a few things that are going to seem really simple, but they really do make a huge difference in um, risk management for a provider. And the first one is really basic, and that is bedside manner. So, you know, statistically, we have just seen over and over and over again that if a patient likes their doctor, they're less likely Mm -hmm. to sue them, even if the doctor makes a mistake. So even if, let's just say, they didn't meet the standard of care and they really screwed something up, if the patient really has that rapport and they care about that provider, they understand, they're reasonable, 
very rarely do they actually ever sue that provider because they have a good relationship with them. So bedside manner really goes a long way. And it's really, really difficult in today's day and age with, you know, electronic health records, and you're busy typing away into the computer, and you're not making eye contact with the patient. You know, sometimes doctors can seem really busy, like I just got to get through this and get on to my next patient. And, you know, they pick up on that. So taking your time, slowing down, sitting down next to the patient while they're, if they're obviously, if they're in their bed or sitting on the exam table, sitting down next to them Mm. shows that you are taking your time with them. You're listening, you care about them. So little things like that really make a huge difference because it doesn't seem like here I am towering over you because I'm the big bad doctor and you're the patient, you know, that type of stuff psychologically can just show a power control issue. So again, bedside manner seems like a small thing, but it really does make a big difference when it comes to um, creating rapport with the patient, showing that you care, um, and obviously reducing the likelihood of a patient wanting to sue you. Yeah. There's other things, obviously, having to do with communication, um, making sure that you're coordinated with your care team, um, making sure you have good processes. So you do the same things the same way every single time and you're not deviating. That's also important, especially in like the, the independent, you know, primary care office practice setting. You know, when your receptionist answers the phone, they answer it the same way every time. They triage calls the same way every single time. So having processes mm-hmm. and standard things like that also helps because you know we always do it the same exact way. Those types of things make a really big difference as well. The other thing is just uh, documentation, which is like the bane of everyone's existence, right? So again, those lovely electronic health records can make it really easy to just click, 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 drop down. But what happens is, you know, you're seeing so many patients on a daily basis that if something happens today and then you get sued two or three years later, are you going to remember your thought process in why you did what you did when you saw that patient? So it's really important that you take your time, that you're articulating, here's what we're doing. Here's why we're doing it. This was my rationale. This was my thought process and why I chose A over B. That type of stuff, again, also just really makes a big difference. It also helps when it comes to defending you, um, because your defense attorney can really help understand your logic. It also will jog your memory so that you're like, oh, I remember this case. I remember this patient. So being very thorough with your documentation is a, is a huge help. So slowing down enough to be able to do all of that and being thorough really makes a big difference from a risk management perspective as well. And obviously making sure you're, you know, accurate, you're not putting in any uh, personal anecdotes. You're keeping it very okay. objective. Uh, you're not going in after the fact and modifying your notes where that might seem self-serving. Because remember, me- you know, medical records are viewable when it comes to trial. So if it looks like you went in and changed your notes two or three days later, the jury is going to ask why. So just make yeah. sure you're just thinking through and being thorough. If you do need to go in and make a modification, it's better to just add a note as opposed to going in and changing something. 
So if you need to add an addendum, add an addendum. Don't go in and change something that you put in prior. If you made a mistake, it's usually better to just say, you know, add an additional note and explain, I made a mistake here. This is what I meant instead. Um, Generally, that works better. But being thorough with your documentation really makes a big difference because that helps your defense should it ever become something in the future. And how long from the occurrence of an incident, like, can you be sued for it? If you are a medical student or a resident physician, I want to talk about an incredible resource, one that I personally used to get through the in-training exams as well as my anesthesiology board exams. I'm talking about TrueLearn. TrueLearn is an incredible resource. It's a test question bank that provides a data-driven approach to prepare for standardized exams. The products they offer include question banks for the medical licensure exam, whether that's the Comlex or the USMLE for medical students, and then several subspecialty licensure exams in the fields of anesthesiology, obstetrics and gynecology, general surgery, pediatrics, emergency medicine, internal medicine, psychiatry, family medicine, or neurology. I know every year when I had to study for the anesthesiology and training exams, I used TrueLearn. I also used this question bank and resource to study for my board exams, which I've thankfully passed since. They are providing a discount. So everybody loves discounts. If you sign up for a question bank, use the code BDPODCAST. That's BD Podcast, right? Black Doctors Podcast. And when you use that discount code, you will save $25 off of your subscription to any of the True Learn products. This incredible offer is available now through the end of the year, so don't miss out. How long from the occurrence of an incident, like, can you be sued for? They, I heard 18 years for like labor delivery. Um, yeah, so it's the statute of limitations issue, right? So mm-hmm. every state has a different statute of limitations law. For the most part, okay. it's like two to three years, depending on your state. <clears throat> Some states are like five. Um, but most of the states here are two to three years statute of limitations. However, there are two kind of like exceptions to the rule that can extend the statute and be problematic. The first issue is, is the date of discovery rule. So the patient has from the time that they discover that there's been a harm event and then the statute clock starts clicking. So if you practice in a state hmm. that has a two-year statute of limitations, let's just say you're a radiologist, okay, and you miss breast cancer, but it doesn't, the patient doesn't find out that it was a missed breast cancer diagnosis for three years. Well, they have from the time that they discover that there was a misdiagnosis, then the, then the statute clock starts clicking. So they have two years from that three-year mark, so technically five years from the date that you did the read that the patient could still potentially sue you. So that's issue number one is the date of discovery uh, rule. Um, The second issue is what you already mentioned, which is PEDS cases. So if you're dealing with minors um, in any capacity, they have until they reach the age of majority plus the statute to file a claim or a suit against you. So if you're treating up your pediatrician or a primary care doctor or anybody that's treating minors, they have until the age of 18 plus the statute that they could still potentially sue you. That's good to know. Yeah. That is good to know. Well, gosh, we're getting through so many things on my list. So 
let's talk about the different types of coverage because I've I've moonlighted a couple places. They provide some form of coverage. I again, I'm bad with paperwork, so I kind of skimmed over the first couple places, and now I don't even know what insurance I have. So I should <laughs> probably go read something about that. Um, you're not alone. You're, you're very typical. <laughs> <laughs> what What are the types of insurance? or malpractice insurance that, is, that are offered? Yeah. So this is, this is the number one question that we get asked. And it is the number one thing that doctors get confused on. And that is, what is the difference between claims made and occurrence malpractice coverage? Because those are the only two types yes. of insurance that you can buy when it comes to malpractice. So it's claims made or occurrence. So let's talk about how they're different. So they're different based on how the coverage triggers. So an occurrence-based policy triggers based on when the incident actually occurred. So the occurrence policy triggers based on when the incident occurred. So if you have an occurrence policy, you basically just carry the insurance while you're practicing, and then when you're done, you can cancel it, and then you just walk away. So no tail insurance is required, nothing else you need to do. The reason why is because that coverage triggers based on when the incident occurred. So did you have insurance at the time that the incident occurred? And the answer is yes. So as long as you had insurance when you treated that patient, you are covered for that particular incident, even if the claim isn't filed for two, three, four, five years down the road, because the triggering event is the date that the incident happened. So as long as you were insured and had a policy at the time of the occurrence, then the occurrence policy covers you. So occurrence coverage is generally thought to be the more flexible policy type because you only need to carry it while you're working. When you're done working, you can cancel it and you can walk away no tail insurance, nothing else you have to worry about at the end. So it's really common for like moonlighters. It's really common for like 1099s, <clears throat> guys who just come in okay. and work for a couple of weeks, a couple months, whatever, because that way they just carry it while they work and then they walk away and they're done. They don't have to buy tail every single time they switch jobs. That policy that they bought stays active with the company. And then if something occurs down the road, that triggering event, the occurrence event, is what will activate that policy to cover you. So that's the okay. occurrence malpractice policy. <clears throat> the other type of insurance you can buy is called claims made coverage. And this one triggers the opposite way. So a claims made policy triggers based on when the claim is made against you. So a claims made policy is really two policies in one. So you have to carry the insurance while you're practicing, right? Because <clears throat> you don't want to have a claim made against you today for a patient that you treated last yeah. week because you have to have insurance in place at the time that the claim is made. But after you're done working on a claims made policy, once you cancel it, you have to get a second policy. And that's tail insurance. Tail insurance starts at your cancellation date and it extends your insurance protection indefinitely into the future in case a claim is still made against you down the road two, three, four, five, ten 10 years 
for patients that you treated in those years when you were previously covered. So if you started practicing in 2020 and you worked until 2020, 2030, let's just say for 10 years, in 2030, yeah. when you cancel that insurance policy, you've got to buy tail. The tail covers you through 31, 32, 33, 34, 35, covers you into the future for any of the patients that you treated from 2020 to 2030. So it's a forward-looking policy that covers you for any claims for the patients you treated during the years when you were previously insured. So a claims-made policy triggers based on when the claim is made against you. So it's two-in-one. Got to carry it while you work, and then you got to buy tail at the end. So that's the difference between the two policy types. And obviously, then there's a difference in price, right? So right. everybody's like, oh, well, then I'll just buy the occurrence policy. It sounds easier. Yeah, because claims, claims sounds, mm-mm. Uh-huh. <laughs> but when I give you a quote and I tell you that an occurrence policy costs you $10,000 a year, but a claims made policy only costs you $2,000 for your first year, and then 3500 for your second year, and then 4500 for your third year, and then 6000 mm. and then it matures at 9000 you realize, oh, so one is ten grand the first year, and one is 2000 the first year. But the claims made policy has that tail at the end. And the tail, as you and I talked about before we hit record, can be kind of salty. So the claims made coverage requires that tail and the tail insurance has to be secured once you cancel it. And it generally costs two times one year's premium. So if you're paying $9,000 a year, your tail is going to cost you around $18,000. Wow. So when we give doctors quotes, we generally will do a side-by-side. So we'll do, here's the occurrence, and then here's the claims made. Um, And usually we'll project out like five years or even 10 years worth of premiums just so that you can kind of budget and see what that rate looks like into the future. And then obviously if you buy the claims made, it's much cheaper for you up front, but you have to be prepared for that tail cost down the road if you want if you go that route and you mentioned the tail being roughly two times the last uh year Mm -hmm. so what if i had uh claims made insurance for 30 years of practice Mm -hmm. is that tail just gonna like get bigger and bigger or is it still no so the claims made policy remember it starts really low and then it increases in price every year it only increases in price for five years because the actuaries, you know, the really smart people that work at the insurance companies, they have determined that after five years, the risk to the carrier is identical. So whether you practice for five years or whether you practice for 30 years, the risk to the company is the same. So your, your, the price that you pay for year five is the same price that you'll pay for year six, year seven, year eight, year nine, year 10, year 20, year 30. So if you start at 2000 on the claims made, and then it goes up and up and up and up. And then at five years, you hit 9000 Then you'll pay 9000 every single year after that. Oh. Does that make sense? And then your tail yeah. is two times the mature premium. Now, if you only carry that policy for a year, 
and then you cancel it, then it's just two times the smaller number. Got you. So it's a factor of how long you've carried the policy. But then obviously after the five-year mark, it's the same price. So it doesn't cost you any more if you buy tail in year five versus if you buy tail in year 30, it's the same price. And with the currents, that high premium each year is just, it is what it is. Right. So the occurrence premium, you're paying 10,000, 10,000, 10,000, 10,000, 10,000, but then there's no tail. So you're paying a little bit more, obviously, especially in those first four years, it's quite a bit more than what you would be paying for the claims made. But by the time you reach that fifth year claims made price, again, in our example, we're saying $9,000. Yeah. Versus the occurrence is $10,000. You know, they're, they're comparable. They're similar premiums, but the occurrence is still a tiny bit more expensive, but then you don't have any tail at the end. So some doctors use the logic, well, I'll just do claims made because I'll save enough with the claims made that I can afford my tail, right? I'll pay for my tail with my savings. Some doctors just say, I don't want to have to worry about the tail at all. So I'm willing to pay a little bit more on an annual basis because I just don't want to mess with it. So there's several different schools of thought, and that's part of our education. When we give quotes to providers, we kind of walk them through that so that they can really determine what's most important to them. Is it most important for them to have a cheaper initial cost, or is it more important for them to not have to worry about buying that stinking tail when they're done with their insurance. So that's part of the education of comparing quotes between carriers, but also looking at one policy type versus another policy type. So let me ask you this. Yeah. I work for some place with a claims made policy for two years. I finish up and I felt pretty good. All my anesthetics were fantastic. I don't think I'll ever get sued. Can I say, no, I don't want this. uh, I don't want to pay the tail coverage. You can, but it obviously there's several issues with that. So first of all, you're essentially uninsured. So if you don't buy the tail and something happens, you have no coverage, which means you have no policy to cover you for any settlements or indemnity payments. It also means you have nobody paying for a defense attorney for you. So you are fully paying out of Mm. pocket for hiring an attorney paying any court fees, paying any losses, that all falls on your shoulders. So that's issue number one. Issue number two is that future insurance companies don't like that. So if for two years, right, you feel really good about yourself and you don't buy your tail and you realize I'm fully prepared to take that financial burden on myself, That's great, but the next insurance company you go and you apply for, when you're filling out your application, it's going to ask you, did you buy your tail? And you're going to say no, and then the underwriter is going to be like, "Mm, then we don't want to write you. Or we're going to charge you more because you left a bunch of risk on the table that we're not comfortable with. So now we're going to raise your price because you're a higher risk than the average provider. So it can be problematic. Can you do it? Sure. I mean, nobody's holding a gun to your head. You, you could absolutely not pay it, but it can cause issues down the road. Gotcha. That's not to say you couldn't find new insurance because you could. It just, 
makes it a little bit more of a bumpy road. When, when it comes to, because I, like I said, I do some locums, I do some moonlighting, and typically the locums group has some kind of mm-hmm. policy. But when it comes to joining a group, do you typically have your own insurance policy or is there some kind of group insurance policy? Yeah. So usually when you join a practice as an employee or something like that, usually they have insurance already in place for you. So you have to take the insurance that the group already has. Now, most practices do it that way because they want all of their doctors to have the same insurance with the same company. From a control perspective, it's easier that way. You know, they know exactly what kind of coverage you have. They pay the same premium for each one of you. So for most groups, that's the way they prefer to do it. So if you join a practice, you know, that's a benefit, right? They're going to cover your insurance for you. Now, the downside is you have no choice. You have no say so. So you have no choice in what carrier they put you with. You have no choice in occurrence versus claims made. You have no choice in your policy limits. You really are hoping that they have quality coverage because you don't have any say so generally in the type of policy that they offer you. So what happens in that situation is we give doctors like four or five questions to ask before you join a practice, because you really do need to know a little bit about the kind of coverage that they're offering you, because there are some, you know, stipulations and things that could be potentially detrimental to you that you need to be aware of. One of them is that issue of the tail coverage, which we talked about before. So if you join a practice and they put you on a claims made policy, which you don't know heads or tails about, you know, most doctors don't know the difference, right? All of a sudden you work for this group for five years and then you leave and they say, here's your tail bill. And you knew nothing about it. You had no idea that the tail was going to be your responsibility. You had no idea how much it was actually going to cost you. So that's one of the things you have to make sure you ask up front. You need to find out what kind of coverage is it? Is it occurrence or claims made? And if it's claims made, what is your protocol for tail insurance? Do I have to buy it or are you guys going to buy it? And, you know, Mm -hmm. obviously you want to make sure that it's a quality policy. You want to make sure that it's got enough coverage that you're comfortable with the limits that they're offering you. You want to make sure that it's a policy that gives you consent to settle, which means you get to tell the carrier before they settle a claim on your behalf. So this is one of those key issues that gets overlooked a lot when it comes to malpractice insurance. So consent to settle is a really, really big deal that employed doctors sometimes get handcuffed with. So if you get named in a suit and you didn't do anything wrong, you met the standard of care, you didn't do anything wrong. But if the group just wants to settle that claim because they want it to go away and they don't want you know, the PR issue, they don't want it to become a bigger problem, If your policy doesn't have consent to settle, then the insurance company can settle that claim without your permission. And now you've got a paid claim on your record that gets sent Mm. to the National Practitioner Data Bank and forevermore it's on your file that you've had a claim against you, even if you didn't want them to do that. So consent to settle is really important because if your policy has consent to settle, it says that you have to give your consent 
before the insurance carrier is allowed to settle a claim on your behalf. So when you're joining a practice, that's one of the things that we suggest you ask is, do I have consent to settle in this policy? Because it's a big deal. You know, if you if they decide to write a check to get out of a case and you don't want them to do that, you have no recourse. I mean, it, it, they, they can write it and it's done. And then it gets sent to the NPDB and it's on your record forever. So now when hospitals go to credential you or you go to apply for malpractice insurance, it's on your file. Roughly what percentage of physicians end up getting uh, something placed on their file or, or malpractice claims? Uh, nearly all of them will be involved oh, in at no. least, you'll be involved in at least one. Now that's not to say that you'll get, that it'll pay out, right? But you're probably going to get named in at least one suit in your career. Um, it also has to do with your specialty, right? So if you're a higher risk specialist, you know, 99% of those guys are going to have a claim. If you're a lower risk specialist, you know, maybe it's more like 60 to 70% of them are going to have a claim. So it ranges, you know, between, I'd say 60% to 100%, depending on the specialty. And also it has to do with where you practice. So if you're practicing in a more litigious area, so let's just say you're practicing in Manhattan or Chicago or Miami or L.A., those are just more litigious areas. So nothing wrong with those cities. They're beautiful cities. I love them all. But if you practice in those cities, your premium is going to be higher and you're more likely to get sued than if you're practicing in middle of nowhere, Idaho, right? That's just the nature of healthcare. So it's a factor of your specialty. It's a factor of where you're practicing uh, in terms of how likely it is that you're going to get sued. That's good. That's good to know. I'm moving to Chicago. So that's, um, <laughs> yeah. Um, oh, gosh, it's been fantastic. And we're going to start to wrap up. Two more questions, though. First one, and uh, with regards to having a claim made, is there a chance or, or what happens if you cannot get malpractice insurance? Like, is there like an, any chance you get like non-renewal or, or dropped from coverage? Yeah, so it does happen. And doctors can get non-renewed for a variety of reasons. Sometimes it's because of claims, like they've had too many claims or they've had a lot of really high payouts. Sometimes it's because um, they're just doing something that's really high risk and the underwriter isn't comfortable with it anymore. And so they non-renew them. So there could be a variety of reasons why you get non-renewed. But if you get non-renewed, it's not the end of the world. So the first step is to obviously talk to your agent and find out what your options are. Chances are you can find insurance with another company and it's not going to be a big deal. And you can kind of stay in that standard insurance market and pay a comparable rate with another company. If you get to the point where you can't find insurance anywhere, like everyone has declined you, you can't find insurance anywhere. There is a secondary insurance market. It's called the excess and surplus lines market. It's essentially Uh, a lower tier of insurance for high risk providers. And of course the coverage isn't as good. The premiums are higher, but their risk tolerance is much wider. So if the standard market carriers won't write you, you can almost always find an option in the non-standard market and a carrier there will insure you. Now you're going to probably pay twice as much as you would normally 
and the policy is not going to be that great. Like you're probably not going to get consent to settle with any of those policies. It gives yeah. you coverage so that you can continue practicing. And most of the time when we have doctors that go to that excess and surplus market, it's not a permanent thing. It's kind of like, I call it rehab. So if you go to the, the ENS market and <laughs> you know, you're there for five years, let's say, and you haven't had any more claims or whatever the issue was has been resolved and you've got a clean record, usually after four or five years in the ENS market, you can move back into the standard market okay. at some point in time. So it's not like a permanent situation. Usually it just depends, but that's generally how it works when you go to the ENS market. So very rarely do you have a situation where you can't find insurance anywhere. The question yeah. is, do you want to pay what they're going to charge you uh, depending on your risk? Awesome. The, the final question I have is kind of, so we talked about group policies and for folks working in academic medicine, there's probably some policy or they're self-insured. What about if I want to open up my own practice or, or side hustle? I, how do I go about getting individual malpractice insurance? So you just contact an agent and you get some quotes. So supplemental malpractice insurance is super popular right now. So even if you are employed hmm. and you work for a hospital or you work for a large network, um, let's say you do have a side hustle or you're thinking of, or you, you know, you want to moonlight and you want to go help out, you know, some of your friends from residency or whatever. Um, you can buy a supplemental malpractice policy. It's way cheaper because it's only covering you for, you know, a couple hours a week usually, but it kind of acts like a buffer policy. So you've got your insurance through your group, but then you've got this supplemental policy that covers you for all the other fun stuff you want to do on the side. Oftentimes that then allows a doctor to, to transition if they're eventually like, I'm going to re resign from my employed position and I'm going to go do this full time. Then you can just use that insurance and turn it into a full-time policy and have it cover you for whatever you want to do. So there's a lot of benefits to carrying your own individual policy because obviously you get the control, right? You get to buy a policy you want from the company that you want with all of the bells and whistles that you want. Um, but it also doesn't limit you. So you can have a policy that'll cover you anywhere you want to practice. Whereas if you work for an employee, as an employee for a group, let's say, that policy is almost always going to be limited in scope and duty, meaning although they're provide, providing your malpractice insurance, you're only covered for the work that you do for them. So you yeah. can't do anything else. It's only going to cover you for the work that you do for that organization. So if you want to open up your own private practice, or you want to get supplemental insurance, the process is the same. So you just contact an agent, you get some quotes, you pick the company that you want, you pay the premium, and then you've got the insurance that you need. So it's a similar process. Supplemental insurance is just cheaper because it's usually part-time versus if you buy a regular full-time policy, you'll just pay the regular full-time price. Gotcha. Well, this has been a fantastic conversation. I've learned so much about malpractice insurance. Again, um, well, Jennifer Wiggins, CEO and founder of Aegis Malpractice Solutions. Thank you so much for joining the podcast and sharing your incredible wealth of knowledge. Um, for the listener out there, this is Aegis spelled A-E-G-I-S. They are online. Check out their website. They also, she also hosts 
a podcast, Malpractice Insights, which has uh, weekly episodes, and you can definitely check that out. It's a video podcast. It's on YouTube. So whatever questions we didn't cover, uh, their website is very comprehensive, as well as this the podcast that they host. So definitely check that out. Jennifer, as we close, how can people get plugged into Aegis Malpractice Solutions? Um, whatever way is most convenient. So hop on our website, um, give us a call, shoot me an email, send us a DM if you're on Instagram. We are pretty active on all platforms. So whatever is most convenient for you. Um, I also have an office text number. So if you're in between patients and you just have a quick question, just shoot me a text. That number is also on the website. It's aegismalpractice.com. So we're happy to help. In fact, I love talking about this kind of stuff. So even if you just have a quick question and it's a hypothetical, hey, I'm thinking about this or I'm interested in maybe doing that, what would that look like? We would love to talk to you about that and kind of explain the different options. And then if and when the time comes that you actually need quotes for coverage, we would love to work with you on that and get you guys quotes for whatever you need. Thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thank you so much. The Black Doctors Podcast is a nonprofit volunteer passion project with the goal of inspiring all who listen. If you enjoy listening, tell a friend about the show or share a link on social media. We are a small team and can use all the help we can get. You can reach us at the Black Doctors Podcast on Instagram or at Stephen Bradley MD on Twitter or Instagram. Tune in next week for another episode of the Black Doctors Podcast because representation matters.